is Cedar Hills Community Church in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, a place to be loved, a place to belong, and a place to serve. My name is Kent. I'm one of the staff here. Did you all enjoy your extra hour of sleep last night? Yeah? I just want to let you know, the dog woke up at the same time this morning, so... Hey, we're the kind of people who want to walk like Jesus, and we've been working on this for a while, and uh, we've been using some specific uh, material to help us with it, which is the Walk Like Jesus book, and some of you have been on the app, and uh, it's been, I think, helpful. I've been getting really great feedback from everybody, especially the, um, the little acronym that Gary introduced a few weeks ago has been, I think, super helpful for getting us all oriented toward this, that we are the kind of people who first and foremost walk with Holy Spirit power that we are dependent on the Spirit, that we don't do this in our own strength, that we do it in the power of the Spirit. And that what we do is we, we pray and we ask for guidance and God speaks and we hear Him when He speaks to us. So we're open to this conversation with God. And that leads to uh, obedience, that we recognize all the commands of Jesus in the Bible and we believe we're supposed to do them. Imagine that, that what He tells us to do, we should do. And uh, we grow in that by remaining firmly word-centered, focused on the, the Bible as true and reliable. And so that guides us in this obedience. And the fruit of that is that we think that the Father is exalted, that our real mission is to bring Him glory, to exalt Him in all that we do. He is in charge. It's, about, it's all about Him. It's not about us. And the R, which we got to last week, was a relational intentionality. And uh, if you haven't yet listened to the message from last week, they're all online. Go back and listen. Steve did a fantastic job in uh, describing this case for recognizing people as people, not projects, that we really should see the people all around us and that we should care for them. So today we're going to be looking at part two of that relational uh, intentionality, and it's really focused on kind of the heart that's behind that or the attitude that's behind that, seeing people as other people. And no big surprise, it's going to be the attitude that Jesus had. And so we're going to continue right where Steve left off in Matthew 9. If you've got a Bible or a phone or some device to read Scripture, I encourage you to turn there, Matthew 9, 35 to 38. Matthew 9. It's always great if you can follow along. And then also, um, just keep, your, keep the word open while we're talking and, and see if I got it right. Matthew 9, 35 to 38. As we prepare to read this together, I want to offer you this blessing. The Lord be with you. Matthew 9, 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. So I have a friend who regularly tells me, it's a great day to be a Hawkeye. And I don't know if any of you in this room are of that same uh, opinion. I'm convinced that one of the reasons this guy says it to me all the time is to bug me. But I also notice that it's it's a great day to be a Hawkeye, whether they win or lose. And I don't know if you're that kind of fan or not, but it's, it's definitely a great day to be a Hawkeye. The last two weekends have been better than previous weekends. And I do notice a little more enthusiasm in his voice after a win. But he's the kind of guy who says, I'm a fan no matter what. 
I'm committed to the Hawks. No matter what, win or lose, sunshine or rain, I'm going to be in there. He's kind of like this fan who I, I quote um, off of uh, the internet. He said this, even when we get blown out by Michigan, I wake up the next morning happy to be a Hawkeye fan. We live and breathe black and gold through the heartaches and the triumphs. Do we have any Hawkeye fans here that are that way? You, you bleed gold, black and gold, no matter what happens. Okay, God bless you. <laughs> Anybody who's a true fan, and not necessarily just the Hawkeyes, gets this, right? That we have our teams, and we're committed to them, no matter what. That we don't bail on them, we stay true. And there's some kind of virtue, actually, in staying true to your team when things are particularly bad. And no matter what happens, we have a hope that someday things are going to get better, right? There's always, uh, we who are Cyclone fans really get this, there's always next year, right? And some of you other, I don't know, Cub fans or some of the other fan bases get this mentality of like, well, it's, there's always hope. Hope springs eternal. There's always another season. There's always a chance that things are going to turn around. I want to talk this morning about a little different spin on this phrase. Instead of saying it's a great day to be a Hawkeye, what if I said it's a great day to follow Jesus? Yeah? And are we the kind of people who would say no matter what, good day, bad day, sunshine, thunderstorms, whatever is going on in our lives, we would say it's a great day to follow Jesus. Okay, good. I'm glad you're with me because we've been talking for weeks now about these four chairs and thinking of this as a spectrum of people on the disciple-making process. Chair one is the person who's the seeker. They're curious. They want to know a little bit more about Jesus, but they have not yet committed themselves to him. They haven't crossed this line of faith. Once you cross the line of faith, you come to this chair, which is the believer chair or new believer. I'm excited. I'm energized. I want to know more about who Jesus is and what he's doing. The longer we're following Jesus, the more we slide down this way to the chair that is like the uh, abide with Jesus chair. I spend time with him. He transforms me. He shapes me to be a servant. I become maybe a worker or use my gifts for the sake of everybody else. And the longer I abide with Jesus, the more likely I am to grow down to this end, which is the chair that is the multiplier chair or the reproducer chair, the disciple maker who makes disciples. They're invested in everybody else in this process. And my main theme today is pretty simple. Whatever of these four chairs you're in, it's a great day to follow Jesus. But as soon as I say that, I recognize that there is some pushback in this world about being a disciple of Jesus, about being a Christian. That there's some in this world who would say it's not a great day to be a follower of Jesus. It's not a great day to be a, a Christian. In fact, there's a lot of people who might say that in uh, this day and age. They think it's a problem to follow Jesus, that Christianity is a difficult thing. I, I looked up a survey or came across a survey this week that was done by a, a polling group across 23 nations. And what they found globally that 49% of adults, that's like half of all the adults, agreed to the statement that religion does more harm than good. Now, these weren't just Christians, they're all religious people, but there is a perception held by almost half of all adults that there's something wrong with religion that it does more harm than it does good. And um, I was following up on this by reading a book called uh, For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. And early in this book, there was a quote from a news anchor who was describing Christians this way. He said, The Bible has inspired genocide, 
torture, and murder. It has inspired cover-ups and pedophilia, race hatred, homophobia, and misogyny. It continues to fuel all these things in many places around the world. There's nothing beautiful and positive about the Bible. It is a book overflowing with hatred, petty jealousy, revenge, and sickening violence. And it is a book that promotes willful ignorance. I'm surprised there's not more violence by the faithful within the church. Maybe there is, and we just haven't heard about it. This is the pushback that someone would give against being a Christian. Now, those of you who are astutely observant have noticed that there's an extra chair up here today. Did you notice this chair? Okay, this is the chair of the person who's not on the pathway toward Christ. This is the chair of the person who says, "Um, I'm not sure Christianity is a good thing. They're opposed to Christ. They're opposed to Christians. They would say that following Jesus is not a great thing to do. These are the persons that maybe we run into from day to day. They have no curiosity and no interest about faith, but they're absolutely convinced that following Jesus leads to bad things. Now, when I run into a person like this and they give me pushback about my faith, I, like you, am sometimes weary because I don't know what am I supposed to say to them? How am I supposed to respond? Do I have to continually defend against these visions that come from people who are maybe mad about Christianity or mad at Christians. And so I don't know exactly what to do. Well, I do know what to do, and this is coming from my head. I know exactly what to do because I'm a smart guy and I'm a preacher, so I can come up with a really neat kind of sermon that tells you how to respond to people who might push back against your faith. And that's actually the sermon that I wrote for you. And I'm going to give you these three really neat points that will help you respond when you get this kind of pushback. The first response is to develop an attitude like Jesus that's kingdom-focused. This is how Jesus responded to the world that was around him. Jesus went through, this is from the text, Luke 9, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Jesus said he's looking at the world, and it's broken, right? The world is a mess. There's all kinds of darkness, there's all kinds of evil, there's all kinds of violence, and Jesus says, I've come to fix it. I've come to restore this broken world. I've come to redeem the lost. I've come to heal the sick. I've come to cast out demons. I've come to fix what's broken, to set all things right. I have come to bring the kingdom. So if we get pushed back in our faith, be kingdom-focused. You remember this passage from a few weeks ago, Luke 4, 18. This is what Jesus said about his mission. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, He anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor so that no matter how dark the day, no matter how difficult the challenge, no matter how big the pushback, we say it's about the kingdom. We have come to restore what's broken. We represent a king and a kingdom with an entirely different worldview. And so don't lose heart. Stay kingdom-focused. Okay, I know that. That's the first of three great points in the sermon. The second point is this. Develop a compassion-driven attitude. Jesus was compassion-driven in his response to the world that was pushing against him. Again, in the text from Matthew, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw people as people not projects, that we heard that last week. This attitude, more than any other, drove his interaction with people. That he saw people who were 
he didn't see a prostitute or a tax collector or an adulterer. He didn't see an evil, wicked person, a leper, a blind man. He didn't see this. What he saw was a, a person. He didn't see a Jew or a Gentile, Roman or Greek. He didn't see male or female. He saw people. And when he looked at the people, what he saw was they were harassed and helpless. This world was wearing them down. They were being abused by this world. And Jesus' response was compassion. Jesus was recognizing that these were like sheep who need a shepherd. And he's the good shepherd. He was kingdom-focused, compassion-driven, and then harvest-ready. So my mind gets this. That after I see these people and I recognize the call of the kingdom, the invitation to the kingdom, and my, my compassion I feel for them, then I'm like, I'm going to reach them. I'm going to reach out and invite them into the kingdom. This is the harvest he's talking about. Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Like the harvest is ready. Go reap the harvest. But the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Harvest-ready people reach out to the harassed and helpless with compassion, and they invite them into the kingdom. This is all that Jesus is saying. Pretty simple, straightforward. I'm actually very thankful to John Maxwell because he did a really great sermon on this passage that follows in Luke 10, 1 to 15, and he gave some other really neat perspectives on the Harvest Ready Church, that the Harvest Ready Church follows a specific call. In chapter 10, verse 3, Jesus says, Go, I'm sending you. That's the call. As Tim was saying a moment ago, we're, we're, not, the, we're not about camping out. We're about being sent out. This is the call that we have, if you're a harvest mindset. And then you pursue a clear objective. Chapter 10, verse 8 and 9, when you enter a town and are welcome to eat what is offered to you and heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God has come. I mean, this is the clear objectives. We're supposed to transform the world. We're supposed to make a difference. See that these harassed and helpless people get cared for. And then don't lose heart. You know, sometimes when this person pushes against us, and says, you know, Christians are a bunch of prejudiced haters. You're, you're a bunch of evil. You know, you're, you're not only not good for the world, you're bad for the world. When you push against that, I don't know about you, but sometimes I lose heart. I, you know, I lose confidence. I'm like, oh man, are we making a difference? Is this going to matter? Are we really going to see the world transformed? I start to wonder. Well, Jesus says, be confident. Because this is what happens just a little bit farther down in chapter 10. The 72 returned with joy, and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So be confident. You've got power over the demons. And Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority over to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Does that give you confidence? You've got the power to no evil will hurt you. So maintain this confident conviction that what we're doing makes a difference that we can transform the world. Satan is defeated. Jesus wins. So when I was looking at this passage, there's the sermon right there. I just gave it to you. Um, kingdom focused, compassion driven, and harvest ready. And that, that was the whole sermon. But I still got some time, so I'm going to go on a little bunny trail. <laughs> this was actually the sermon until Friday afternoon. And then Friday afternoon, I got a, a text from somebody that I care about a lot. A person that I think of as being very close to me. And the text from this person said something like, you know what, because of your faith, 
because you follow Jesus, you've wounded me. Um, I interpreted this text because of the frame of mind I was in as he's saying to me, it's not a great day for you to follow Jesus because this is having a negative effect on my life. And that, you know, took me short. And as, as often happens when I'm working on a message for you all, I finally have to deal with it myself. And I'm trying to figure out, now what am I supposed to do about this? How am I supposed to respond? Oh, well, you know, kingdom focus, God is at work and compassionate, I'm going to care, and I'm going to be ready to give a reason for the hope that I have if it ever comes up. I'm, I'm, you know, I got this all in my mind, but my heart is not taking this very well. Um, I'm trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do. In that moment, all of my neat little categories collapsed, and my neat little sermon collapsed, and all this stuff fell apart. And I wanted to say in that moment, you know, forget the kingdom. Screw compassion. I'm not going to care. It's too exhausting to keep pushing against this thing. It's not going to make any difference anyway. So this is the frame of mind I have. You know what I actually felt like? I felt like one of the disciples of Jesus in Luke 9. Do you know what happened in Luke 9? I'll tell you what happened in Luke 9. It says, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem and he sent messengers on ahead and he went into a Samaritan village to, greet, to get things ready for them. But the people did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. These are people who are in this chair. They were not fans of Jesus. There's some kind of prejudice thing going on here with the Samaritans and the Jews, some kind of hatred. And so they're like, we don't want you here. That's what they were saying to Jesus. And the disciples of Jesus come up with a brilliant strategy to deal with that. This is what they say. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? This is how I feel sometimes when the world pushes back at me, especially when people I care about push back about my faith. I want to say, forget it. You know, God, take care of them. That's what I want to say. That's why I'm feeling in the moment when I'm processing all of this stuff. I'm feeling a lot like Jonah. You know the story of Jonah, right? Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh and he doesn't want to, so he gets on a boat and goes the other direction, and he, then he gets cast into the sea and swallowed by the great fish. That's the really exciting part of the story. But then the um, fish, you know, pukes him out on the beach, and he goes to Nineveh, and he actually does what God asked him to do, which is preach repentance, and lo and behold, the people repent. The most intriguing part of this story, I think, is right at the end of chapter 3, right before chapter 1. The people repent and saw sackcloth and ashes, and you know what Jonah says? God, I knew you were the kind of God who would show compassion. That's why I didn't want to preach to them. Uh, Jonah doesn't care about the people in Nineveh. He wants to, in fact, what he does next is fascinating too. He goes and builds himself a little tent up on the hillside overlooking the city, and then he sits there like this. Okay, God, I'm waiting. And what he was waiting for is, for fire to come down from heaven and burn up the city. That's what he wanted to see because those people deserve it, right? So I find my heart going that way sometimes. And on those days, I think, it, I don't know if it's a great day to follow Jesus or not. If we could call fire down from heaven to take care of all the people who disagree with us, that would be a great day to be a 
follower of Jesus. <laughs> I'm still in the middle of processing all of this, maybe as you can tell, so I abandoned the next steps I had given the tech team and went to a completely different direction. So here's the three conclusions I'm going to offer up as next steps for you. The first one is this. Can we all agree this week, no calling down fire from heaven on anybody? Can we just agree to that? <laughs> I had somebody stop me after the first service and this was hilarious because he goes, you know, in golf we get a mulligan. <laughs> okay, would you like to just call down fire on one person this week? Okay, if, that's, if you can go that far, that's okay. Second thing, can we remember that we can't truly love our neighbor? We can't truly love anyone without the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do this on our own. We don't do it in our own strength. We're Holy Spirit-dependent people, right? So we're going to do all the rest of the power things underneath that acronym. It's going to count on the Holy Spirit, including the relational intention, intentionality, being relationally connected, continuing to care. If I'm going to care for the people I'm not sure I like very much, it's not going to be in my own power. It's going to be in the power that God gives me by His Spirit. Okay? It's God's job, not mine. So I can just trust God to use me in that. And then the third piece of advice I'm going to give is um, don't give up. Because when we get that pushback, I know my first reaction is to say, you know, fine, I'm done. I'm not going to keep trying anymore. It's too hard. But maybe we need to just not give up. Just keep believing that it really is a good day to follow Jesus. And Jesus can lead us into something way beyond what we ever hope or imagine. The story's not over. The job's not done. God's still working. So don't give up. So no calling down fire. Recognize the work of the Holy Spirit. And then just don't quit. Just keep, keep going. Uh, something else that helped me process all this this week was a book called How Minds Change. And this is a book that was written by a psychologist who studied people who are very dead set in their opinions. And the actual group of people that he studied were uh, people who hold to conspiracy theories. Now, I don't know if any, this includes any of you. It may. That's fine. But he studied these hardcore conspiracy theorists who are like all over the globe and they get these really fanciful ideas about what's really going on and they make a conspiracy about it. And these people are so entrenched in their idea, there's no changing their mind. That's what he thought. But then he ran into some that actually changed their mind. Now, the guy who's doing this research is not a Christian. He's not in one of those four chairs. He's clearly in this chair. He's an atheist. He's not interested in the things of God. He's not interested in the kingdom of God coming. But he is curious about this research about how could someone who's very entrenched in an opinion, how could they change their mind? So he did this research, fascinating stuff. And you know what he discovered actually changes somebody's mind? If they know you care about them if you show empathy, if they have a place to belong, because they're entrenched in this group of conspiracy theorists, they belong there. They're not going to leave that belonging unless they know they could belong somewhere else. The key to the whole thing was compassion. The most entrenched, most stubborn, most unshakable changed their minds when they felt compassion coming from the new group. Which then made me think some more about this little text I got, and I wondered if the whole thing that was really being asked in this text, I'm wondering, 
is if I would just keep caring for him. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Today is a great day to follow Jesus. Lord God, giver of every good gift, we thank you for the gift of this time together today. Thank you for the gift of your spirit who's hovering around this room and working in our hearts. Thank you for the gift of your word, which is true and reliable. Thank you for the gift of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, we ask that you'll continue the good work that you started in us until one day it is completed, and we will give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you would like to support the ministry of Cedar Hills, visit www.cedarhillscr.org.